that way. Our trust, our confidence, our hope as believers in Christ, as those who have come to trust in His saving grace, we rejoice together in this privilege to sing of hope, of no condemnation, of an assurance of eternity in Your presence. While these truths seem to be presumptive to many, arrogant to some, foolish to many, we thank You that our soul resonates with the promises of the Word of God. We realize it has nothing to do with us. That we are in chains by nature. That we are separated from You by nature. But we thank You for what Christ has done. For the work that He has accomplished in our behalf. And we pray in behalf of those who do not know the joy and the wonder of that truth. They would recognize their need to respond to what You have revealed. And may you open their eyes to see that truth. And may we together rejoice in new life in Christ as we have in song. And now as we come again before the Word of God and look at it more carefully and seek to feed our souls upon it, we pray that you would move by your Spirit, teaching and convicting and drawing us to the light of the Word of God. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Do you believe in life after death? Let me just put any concern to rest. We're not going to have somebody come back from the dead today and talk to you as we find in some places, let you know that they saw life after death or something like that. I have no idea. People ask me about such individuals. I have no idea what they've seen. I have no idea what's going on in their mind. We're not going to do that. We're not going to look to that sort of proof today. But do you believe in life after death? More specifically, do you believe that how you live on earth will be either rewarded or punished in eternity? The 19th century German philosopher and revolutionary socialist Karl Marx said, absolutely not. Marx insisted that Promises of reward in eternity are a lie and they are intended to numb the minds of common people to their deplorable social conditions. The masses are stuck living miserable lives and somebody comes along and makes false promises of heaven. It pacifies their trials. It doesn't allow them to think about what they really need to do, and that is to revolt against their oppressors. And so looking to eternal reward beyond this life keeps them numb. Well, Mr. Marx, I don't think that the oppressed and poor are really all that stupid. That they somehow lose track of their oppression by some religious lie. It's a ridiculous thought. But ironically, Mr. Marx, a society experiences real oppression when people believe there is no final accounting for our actions after death. That's where the oppression really comes in. People who believe they can lie and cheat and steal and hate and worship pleasure and love money with no fear of final accounting before God, they inevitably oppress others. That's so often where oppression begins 
is losing all sight that I must give account for my life in the next. So a gunman strides into a public place and commences to on this murderous rampage showing no sense that he may very well stand just a few moments later in the presence of God with hands dripping with blood. It's not how he's thinking in that moment. And we realize there's all kinds of derangement and difficulties and things going on there we can't understand, but there's definitely no sense I will see God. When the, our children were smaller, we had a family vacation. We all piled in the van and took off for a week. That was, sounds like idyllic days <laughs> with uh, work schedules. That seems virtually impossible these days and people here and there, but we did that once upon a time and we're gone for a week and uh, putting four kids in a van for a week is, is challenging. We'll just say that. And somehow in the mix of it all, we didn't get the garage door down. So our house is open to the outside with, uh, if I recall, I think we were having one car fixed while we were gone, which was often a scheme in, in our lives, it still is, but uh, one's gone, the other, uh, on vacation, the other's in the garage, so a garage door wide open, nothing in there. It was quite clear we were gone, and to anybody confused, by day three or four, it'd be pretty clear that we were gone, and the doors open right into the house. Now, who do you want to live next to? What kind of neighbors do you want in that sort of situation? Do you want a neighbor who has imbibed the idea that I can do anything I want as long as I can get away with it in this life? Or do you want a neighbor that says everything that I do is seen by God and there will be an accounting? I don't know what all of our neighbors thought, but thankfully we weren't robbed. We could have been cleaned out in that situation. But when you think about it, who do you want to live next to? I'd rather live next to a pagan who has the idea that the gods are watching and there is a life beyond where I give an account than to somebody who's bought into this lie that I can get away with anything I can get away with down here. Now, there's even a religious version of this. I don't know if we recognize it so much, but the religious version is everybody goes to heaven. There is an eternal life. There is an afterlife. But everybody, one way or another, makes it into heaven. What's it doing? It's basically the same idea. The worst, most abusive, sinful man I've ever met on this planet that I've had a chance to interact with and be around, when he took his life in the funeral, there was the guarantee that he was in heaven. Well, that has a basically the same effect. No matter how you live, no matter how many people you hurt, no matter how wicked you are in heart, you end up in heaven and all is made right. And God can get it all worked out and fixed. Now, I'm not suggesting by this that we should believe in life after death because it keeps people in check. Sometimes it does. And even if I'm living next to someone who believes in reincarnation, I'd rather think that if they robbed our house when our garage door was open, would mean that in, in their reincarnation they'd turn into a rat. I'd rather have that guy than the person that says there's no God, right? So it does have an effect, but that's not the point. The point here is for each of us to determine what is your vision of life. And how does it affect the way that you live day in and day out? Do you believe that there is an afterlife? 
Do you believe that there's an afterlife where there is accountability? There was no question where Jesus of Nazareth stood on this point. And if you'll work your way to Luke chapter 16, let me lay a bit of the background here and look at the lay of the land concerning the afterlife in Jesus' teaching. Now we need to do a little bit of that work to bridge the gap between our day and the day of Christ, or we don't really understand the context in which He spoke the things that He said. But in Jesus' day, there was a Jewish sect known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were absolutely convinced there was no afterlife, there was no accounting in eternity. It was just this life. The Epicureans of Roman society also denied any relationship between how one lives in this life and a reward in the next life. There just was no connection there. But there was another Jewish religious sect known as the Pharisees. They believed in an afterlife and they believed in eternal reward. But what Jesus noticed in their life as He grew into adulthood, as He became a teacher and began to relate to them, one thing that He began to notice and addressed in His ministry was that they failed to see that one's life on earth was not always a reflection of one's life in eternity. They made the direct connection. Why is that? They were religious people. They were influential people. They were generally very wealthy people. They had the best of the society around them, and they looked around and said, my life's good here, it's going to be good in the next life as well. I'm a good person, I'm respectable, God has given me many blessings and gifts. Look at all these other people that don't have what I have. God is clearly on my side, and what I'm experiencing here is what's going to happen in eternity. And Jesus saw the foolishness of that thinking and He exposed it in ways that was very challenging to the Pharisees. As we look at Luke chapter 16 and verse 1, there is a context where we're heading here. And let me just mention it briefly. But in 16.1, He says to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that his, this man was wasting his possessions. And He tells this story, this parable, to help people to think through the use of money. In verse 9, He says something very pointedly here in chapter 16. And I tell you, make friends of yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He's saying how you use your money here will have an effect in eternity. There will be a direct connection between the two. And the Pharisees weren't seeing that. So Jesus is teaching them here, be aware of this relationship. In verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, the Pharisees who were, notice what it says there, who are they? They are lovers of money. They heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. They didn't like what He was saying because He was convicting them about their use of money, about the way they loved money more than they loved God and loved other people. And so he says, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You have your money. You have control in this society. You are the big people. But I want you to know God doesn't look at you the way everybody else does. 
And he began to expose that. Now, as we come to verse 19, we come to another story that Jesus tells to expose the Pharisees, to expose all of us who are clinging to this life with no thought of the connections to the next, or not thinking properly about it. And he tells a story here that, as one has put it, it brings to reality eschatological reversal. What does that mean? Eschatological reversal. In the end time, in the next life, let's say it that way, there are many times, there's many times a reversal from what is true here. So remember where they're coming from. Everything's working for me. Everything's good for me. That's how it's going to be in the next life. Jesus wants them to see and us to see that's not necessarily the case. And so he tells a story about a great reversal. Is it a story? Is it a true account? It's the only parable that Jesus teaches that uses an individual's name, and that may indicate that it's more than just a story, but even if it is a story, Jesus is, is illustrating reality. We don't need to get caught up into whether it's a story or a true account. He doesn't really make that clear to us. But I quote from a theology that says this. It says it well. Millard Erickson says, While it was not Jesus' primary intent here to teach us about the nature of the intermediate state, it is unlikely that he would mislead us on the subject. That's a bit sarcastic. He's saying Jesus is not going to give you a story that leads you away from the truth. So even if it's not an actual account, there's many people who say because it's not an actual account, we can dismiss it. It means nothing. Jesus never said a, told a story that meant nothing. And he never told a story that didn't lead us to truth. So we really don't need to quibble over whether it's an actual account or a parable that he's telling Again, a bit unusual that he names someone in a parable, but whatever the case, he's pointing us to the truth. And in pointing us to the truth, he tells us about two lives on earth. We read of them in verse 19 and following. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. We relate color and clothing to style, not to expense. It doesn't matter if it's red or blue or purple or yellow or whatever. But in Jesus' day, how did you get your clothing dyed in purple? They had to go out and harvest a, a, a snail, uh, and they would work it and create that dye, and it took a lot of people to do that, to pull it out of the ocean and to create the dye. And so if you had a purple, outer purple coat, it was a symbol of uncommon wealth. So we, no, we note of this man, he has luxurious clothing, he eats fine food, he has a home with a gated courtyard, we're going to learn in verse 20. The cream of society was poured daily into this man's cup. He had it all. He was rich, and undoubtedly then famous. But we note in verse 20, someone else. As we hear the Pharisees almost sighing, with knowing pleasure at this wealthy existence, we read in verse 20, at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. He, des he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In stark contrast, Lazarus is clothed with weeping sores a condition that the stray dogs exploited by licking his body. It had to be 
horribly miserable. And his weak body is dumped in front of the rich man's gate so that he can beg there for food. When your empty stomach, now think of it, your empty stomach longs to eat scraps of food that fall on the floor, you are really, really hungry. And it means you're not getting fed. No one is satisfying that hunger. That's his condition. So while one man basks in five-star luxury, the other wallows in misery. And with no government-run social security system in in place, the Jewish law puts Lazarus at the mercy of this rich man. If he's going to eat, it will be because this man cares for him. But he's hungry. Very hungry. Remember what Jesus said back in 16.9. Put your money in play so that it has an effect in eternity. That's precisely what this rich man was not doing. He was simply glutting his own interests with no regard to Lazarus. As one commentator puts it, Lazarus was simply part of the landscape. He was the guy at the gate you just ignored. So we see the contrast of two lives on earth. And we see then secondly, as he continues with this account, the two destinies in eternity. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. What happened to his body? We're not told, but it is pretty clear that Jesus' listeners would have just known what happened to this guy's body. When there's no one to care for you like that and you're in that kind of condition and you die, you get thrown in with sacrificial parts and burned on a heap. Or if you're not there in Jerusalem, you just get burned somewhere. Get put away, burned up, nobody remembers, you're gone, it's over. But you notice the emphasis isn't on how he was buried. The emphasis is that he's brought to Abraham's side. What does that mean? That's not a location. Uh, Abraham's bosom, as some translations have it, or Abraham's side. It's not a location. It's a figure of speech indicating that Lazarus was warmly received into the fellowship of Abraham. It's a term drawn from the context of table fellowship. He was welcomed in. Did you hear us sing that phrase today? Welcome in. You're home now. On earth, Lazarus was a hopeless, miserable, starving, homeless outcast. But in death, he dines in luxury and intimate fellowship with the father of the faith. With the father of Israel, Abraham himself. He's now home. Verse 22, the rich man also died. John Dunn calls it the great leveler, his death. He died too, and he left all his clothes and his food and his house behind. And being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. There is an emphasis here on life after death. Neither man ceases to exist. Their eternal souls live on in eternity. And this man's soul is living on in Hades. 
It's not the lake of fire or what we might call hell, Revelation 20, but Hades is the realm of the dead. It's an intermediate state because the man's body was buried. It's down here on earth, but he is in heaven. What does that mean? His spirit is alive. Body, spirit, separated is death. His spirit is alive and apparently temporarily clothed with some sort of physical presence so that people can be recognized. He is in Haiti, and he is consigned there, and he is awaiting the resurrection of his body and his eternal consignment to hell. And the rich man can identify Lazarus, and somehow can identify or knows who Abraham is as well. So they've not been reincarnated as a rat. They've not been reincarnated as an angel with wings and a halo, bouncing around on a cloud. They're together, talking, fellowshipping, living. But Lazarus is no more clothed with sores. He's now in the presence of Abraham himself. And this man notices that, and he, verse 24, calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you see the parallel with what Lazarus was facing? If I could just have some crumbs that fell to the floor. Now the rich man saying, if I could just have a finger dipped in water. He imagines in the misery of this situation that even that would alleviate his suffering. Just to remember what a drop of water tasted like and how it satisfied. Now, he certainly hoped for more. But his torment is such that he imagines a single drop of water will be immensely satisfying. It's a horrible scene. Jesus is painting it purposefully. What's the response? Abraham says, verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. How do you read that? How do you take that? I mean, looking at it right away, it might say those who are rich on earth, they go to hell and they're poor. And they suffer, and they don't have any of the pleasures of life. And those that really suffer and are poor and have difficulty, everything gets turned around, and God's sort of saying, okay, now it's your time to have the good life. Is that what he's saying? What we're going to find as we continue through is that interpretation is obviously missing everything that follows. So that's not the point. And one way we can know right up front that's not the point is what? Abraham was a very wealthy man. And Abraham is in the presence of God. So if that's what he's saying, whoever's poor becomes rich, and whoever's rich becomes poor, how's Abraham in heaven? All Jesus is saying is that the realities of our earthly existence may be dramatically reversed in eternity depending on how we live. That's what he's saying. You lived one way, he lived another, that's brought him here, and that's left you there. So as one commentator says, the rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. He became consumed with his own leisure and celebration. 
The rich man is judged because of his use of wealth, but because his use of wealth revealed a heart that valued and worshipped money over God. That will be revealed as the text unfolds. Keep that thought in mind. His ultimate problem was not that he ignored Lazarus. His ultimate problem was that in ignoring Lazarus, he was ignoring God. Verse 26, and besides all this, in addition, says Abraham, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. You lived your life separated from God and His ways, and now in eternity you are irreversibly separated from God and His blessings. The rich man does not argue. He seems to understand the logic is irrefutable. What he's receiving is what he deserves. Abandoning all hope of escape, abandoning even all hope of comfort in his situation, the rich man issues an unexpected request. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Household. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, so that he, that is, that Lazarus may warn my brothers, lest they also come into this place of torment. If Lazarus cannot help me, send him back to earth to help my family. There's a couple of things that are just assumed in his response. And the first is he realizes there will be no advantage to company in Hades. He's not saying, I can't wait till my brothers get here so that we can party. He's saying, do what you can to keep them out of here because it's not going to do me any good and it's not going to do them any good. So there's no camaraderie. I've actually had an individual tell me that I want to go to hell because it's the only place I can meet my friends because that's where they're all headed, he told me. We'll party there. No, there won't be such ability. Second thing we learn is he realizes that where one spends eternity is determined in this life. Do you see that? He doesn't say, well, my brothers will be joining me soon and I'm ready for them. He says, send Lazarus back there to earth so that they don't end up here. He has no sense that after death there will be another opportunity for them to respond because he knows there's no opportunity for him. So get back to earth with Lazarus. Send a ghost and maybe that will wake them up. They'll, they'll listen to him. Now doesn't his request hit you at first as compassionate? I mean, here's a guy thinking about his brothers. That's noble, right? He doesn't want them to suffer in this way. There's something else going on here. And it gets exposed. Verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let your brothers listen to Moses and the prophets. Who's that? That's the Bible. That's the text of Scripture that they would have at that time. In His love and in His mercy, God has communicated to us in the written text of the Scriptures. God can talk to us as He wishes. But what He has chosen is that He would communicate to us in written form. In the text 
of those who have written what he desires, they have used their minds, they have used their skill, they have written exactly what they desire to write, but God in his superintendence helps them to write what God wants to communicate with people. They have that, let them read. Let them hear the scriptures. In this book, he provides all that we must know to gain eternal life and fellowship with him, to avoid eternal separation from him in judgment. And this should be encouraging to us. I don't have to hear a guy come from hell to tell me, or heaven to tell me there's an afterlife. I can read the scriptures, and in the scriptures there is the path to enter into the presence of God, to commune with Abraham, so to speak. So Abraham's counsel is your brothers do not need a shock and awe, supernatural visitation. What they need is to believe the truth of God's Word. If I talk to anybody here today, and that's what you're really looking for, is a shock and awe proof that God is, you're never going to find it outside of the written text of the Bible. Because if you don't believe what the Bible says, you're not going to believe anything that appears to you and is phenomenal in that sense. And it's here that the rich man's real heart attitude is exposed. Notice verse 30. He said, no, Father Abraham. I mean, that's just some irony there, isn't there? I'm going to set the father of faith straight. No, you got it wrong. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will what? What? They will repent. He's got it. This condemned man fully realizes the answer is not for his brothers to give their wealth away. So if we were reading verse 25 that way, it doesn't work. He's not saying they won't give their wealth away unless Lazarus shows up and tells them. That's not what he says. He says they won't repent. He's understanding that he lived in sin and deserves this outcome. He knows his brothers must repent if they will avoid his experience. To admit that they have violated God's will. That's repentance. You admit, I've broken the law of God. You admit, I do not deserve the grace of God. But you turn from your sin to embrace Christ's grace. That's repentance. To turn from the way you're living to trust in the grace of the provision of Christ. They must repent. So I remind us again, what we need more than phenomenal signs and wonders to prove the existence of God. We really don't need that. What we need is a new heart. We need a new heart that hears the Word of God and says it's the Word of God. It's the truth. The rich man's true heart comes out here when he says, essentially, I had the written Word of God. Look where it got me. Didn't accomplish anything in my life. My brothers need something more. They need something bigger. They need something better. Something snazzier. Something that's going to get their attention. Some external evidence. If they get that, then I got ripped off 
All I had was the written scriptures. Didn't do me any good. What does Abraham say? Oh, okay, I'll send them back. No. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty of breaking God's law. We do steal. We do lie. We do cheat. We do lust. We do hate. We live in selfish, lazy, proud, greedy, unkind, unloving ways. And what this man in eternity realizes is that we must repent. We must acknowledge our sin and turn from it to embrace the forgiveness of God. The answer is not to give away money. Although that may be necessary. And in some cases, Jesus even pointed that way for those that were clinging to money. The only way that you're going to repent and turn to Me is if you put your money aside and follow Me. But it's not in the giving of our money away that we find access to eternity with God. Now think of it again. The Pharisees are listening in here. They're listening to Jesus teach. And as He teaches, they are the brothers. They stand in the place of those brothers. They're hearing the Word of God. And Jesus is the prophet sent by God to speak the truth to them. Jesus is the living Word who is pointing them to the written Word. So as they hear this man pleading in Hades to send back word to the brothers, they're the brothers. They're hearing it. They don't need Jesus to perform another miracle. Every miracle that He performed that they saw, they just wanted to see another one. I want to make sure we got it right. Not sure we really saw that. Not sure that was really a special, after I've thought about it, is when I asked, saw you do what you did. So another miracle pleased Jesus. They were saying this over and again to Him. Where are they heading? They're heading exactly away from the will of God. They're rejecting Christ by asking for miracles and not listening to His Word. Do you know what's going to come soon? This is all going to be proven very soon. Very soon, Jesus is going to raise a man who just happens to be named Lazarus from the dead. He's going to raise him from the dead. And you know how they respond? They respond saying, let's kill Jesus and let's re-kill Lazarus. I mean, what more do you want? The guy is dead. He's buried. He's gone. Everyone knows it. And Jesus calls him out of the tomb and he rises from the dead. And they say, let's kill him again. That's how they respond to the sign and the wonder. The hammer that shatters the sin-hardened heart is God's Word. It's, it's, it's wonderful, it's good news, it's warning. All in one. If they do not hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
say respectfully to each one of you today, you have heard that word. You just heard it. Jesus teaches us that there is an afterlife. There is life after death. And He teaches us that our lives on earth will either be deemed worthy of entering His presence and fellowship, or they will be judged unworthy of entering into His holy presence. We have been taught that. He has made that point clear. We will be left to our own self-justifying misery, as this man was, separated from every blessing of God and therefore in torment, or we will be invited into the fellowship of faith where all God's blessings are poured out upon us eternally. This is Jesus' position. This is what He teaches. Such talk makes a lot of people in this world laugh or pity us for holding such a ridiculous notion. Or, in the case of Karl Marx, it makes them mad. There's manipulation going on here, so people are just happy with their miserable lives. How could anybody believe such things? But Jesus delivers this message to us in loving concern that we would be prepared for what will come. And when I look at who I'm going to trust in delivering this truth, I'm going to trust the one that defeated death. I'm going to trust the one that died and was crucified and rose from the dead and lives today. That's the one I'm going to listen to. Because in some sense, one has come from the dead and has announced the truth. I hear him. And you know, in our daily lives, we really, even apart from the Bible, we really have the pieces of this, just everybody. Don't we hear all the time liberty and justice for all? We want justice for people. We insist on justice for people. We say it's not right for people with power and authority to mistreat people who are poor and, and, and in difficult situations. And we stand up in our culture and say that shouldn't happen. We don't like that. There's a government official that begins to steal money and use influence in order to get the way of the constituency. And we say, stop that. That's not right. We all want justice. We want fair treatment for people. And the reason is because we know there is a standard. There can't be any cry for justice apart from a standard and ultimately a judge who says what is right and wrong. There's an indication there just in the way that we think and our wired that points us in that direction. Well, Jesus is saying, believe me, the standard's there and the judge is there. I'm both. I am the standard of truth and I will be the judge of the living and the dead. And so please, don't take from this as we think of Christ. We'll just, for a few moments, think a little bit further on this, but... Jesus is teaching us that if we are generous with the poor and live a decent life, He will reward us with eternal gain. That's how I take His story. Don't do that. Don't read it that way. In some sense, reading it that way is there for us. It's almost in a gracious way that Jesus baits us to think that way. Because if we're drawing that interpretation from this passage, if I will give money away and be generous and helpful to people, I'll go to heaven, we are showing we don't get what he's saying. 
That's right where the Pharisees were, and he's using this story to convict them, not to benefit them or to encourage them in their thinking. So what is it about? Well, we can listen to the rich man, and we can listen to Abraham and put it together, and that's what it's about. He said it, didn't he? We must repent. And we must repent as we respond to the word of God. The rich man said we must repent, and Abraham said we will repent only as we heed the word of God. So putting the two together, we see it for what it is. It's not be a good person, give your money away to gain heaven. It is turn from your sin and trust in what God has revealed. And what does Jesus reveal as the gospel continues on and as we put together all of what Christ is teaching? He is teaching us that all have sinned and deserve the destiny of the rich man. Do you believe that? Nobody deserves that destiny, you may be saying. Nobody deserves that. If you're saying that of this rich man, it is a clear indication you don't get it. You don't get who you are. And again, I say that respectfully and be happy to debate and interact on it. And you can talk to me about how a wonderful person you are, and I'll listen. But as we begin to peel back the heart and look inside, if we don't get that we're the rich man by nature, and we don't get it. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not greedy, I'm not filthy rich. Oh, maybe you don't have the money to play with to be greedy and filthy rich. But it's in us. It's in us. The Word of God says all have sinned and deserve the destiny of this rich man. But it also teaches us, Scripture continues to reveal, and Jesus teaches us that Christ died in the place of sinners to bear the penalty of our sin. That He took our sin and dying for us as a perfect sacrifice and sinless man, the Son of God, rising from the dead, He can give the gift of eternal life. It'd be foolish for us to stop at Luke 16 and say this is all there is to it. Jesus continues to point us here to His death and to His resurrection. That's where it's all located. That's how we respond to the Word of God, particularly where we stand in history today with the revelation we've received. And so it points us to repentant trust, just as Abraham and the rich man put together. Repent and believe. Believe what God has said. Taking in the way of salvation that Jesus taught, connecting it to this story, we must conclude this, that the ultimate reversal is not a rich man who ends up in Hades, but a sinner who ends up in heaven. That's the ultimate reversal. And if you want to be part of that ultimate reversal in your life, the truth is held out there for you as a gift of salvation to see Christ as the one who pays the penalty of your sin and to receive His resurrection power as eternal life. The crucial response is not to now get busy doing good works to gain God's approval. Jesus also promised that such people would not be in heaven because they trust their works. The crucial response is a repentant trust in Jesus' sacrificial death and gift of eternal life. Tragically, the rich man lived to get all he could out of life 
And all the while, he was securing eternal destruction. His brothers were blindly skipping down that same path. And maybe today you are. Maybe, honestly, that's where you're at. Getting everything out of life that you can. Keeping everything that you can get away with keeping. Helping no one but yourself. And the whole time, it's not because simply you're not doing enough. It's because you aren't trusting Christ. You don't see yourself as one in need of rescue. I say to you, with love, as graciously as I can, the Word of God that you've seen here is the only thing that will break through a hard heart. Heed it. Listen to it. Know that the Lord has spoken to your heart today and to mine. Turn to Christ today. He is a gift. He is a wonder. He is our eternal life. You can find that life in Him, not by paying for it, not by being good enough, but by trusting the Word that has been delivered. Putting your hope and your confidence in that message. And then, as He gives you that new life, it's a whole lifelong journey of being changed, of being transformed so that your life here is integrating with your life in eternity and you are sowing the seeds of eternal reward rather than of destruction. This is the message before you. Only you can respond. We cannot do that for you, but we welcome you as a church to talk about this, consider this, join in with us as we continue to pursue the Lord together. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Lord, for those that have come to visit with us today. We don't know every heart, and even those who are among us week in and week out, there may well be those who are still separated from Christ. I pray that they would understand that the message that's been delivered today, the songs that have been sung, the passages read, the prayers that have been offered the invitation even to this church today that all of it is oriented toward love. We have a desire to speak the truth even when it's hard so that there would be a response, a repentant response in the truth that you've allowed us as a church to see. And I pray in behalf of anyone who is yet separated from Christ that you would, they would see Jesus as a gift and see what he's done and respond to what the Bible is delivering. If there would be a, a desire now welling within their heart to turn to Christ and to trust Him, I pray that you would fuel it, that you would open their eyes to see this isn't a myth. There is truth in it. It seems too good to be true. But it isn't. It's your grace. It's your goodness. May they see that. And may those who have come to trust Christ as Savior rejoice that our names are written in heaven. That our names have been inscribed in the hand of God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done and the life that's in Him. We thank You for what You will be pleased to do in our hearts. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with me.